Do you know who Gordon Church is? Don't be surprised if you don't. Much like Matthew Shepard, Gordon Church was beaten, raped, tortured, and murdered because he was gay. Unlike Shepard, the crime against Church occurred before the country was ready to talk about such atrocities on the queer community. Writer, now turned documentarian Chad Anderson is helping to tell Church's story in his upcoming documentary. Today we talk with Chad about Gordon Church's story, about his reason and process for creating this documentary with limited resources, and about how we in the queer community can help get Church's story told. Thank you for joining us for another Queer Money. There's personal finance for the masses. This is not personal finance for the masses. This is Queer Money. Welcome back to another episode of Queer Money. David and I are in a fortunate position where at the point now with Queer Money where people come to us with show and topic ideas for us to cover and that helps us immensely and it helps ensure that we create the content that people are looking for. And a colleague of ours brought Chad Anderson to our attention a couple of months ago. Chad is our guest today, and he's got a very important story. He's working on a very important project that isn't necessarily finance-related, but there is a money component that we're going to talk about towards the end. But more importantly, we want to share Chad's story and help him in sharing Gordon Church's story, which is an important story I knew nothing about until a few months ago. Right. And as you'll remember, more often than not, John and I like to share stories of individuals who are doing something different in our community that are reaching a little further than what most of us are comfortable with. And I think that's the example that we have here with Chad. Exactly. So welcome, Chad. Thank you for joining us. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Sure. So would you mind giving our listeners a little bit of a background on who you are? Yeah, I moved to Salt Lake City about seven years ago as an ex-Mormon gay father of two sons and uh, got really interested in the local history here. I'm a writer and a social worker by trade, but I started looking into the history of gay people in Utah and uh, came across some historians who'd done some really beautiful work over the years here. I came across a list of gay hate crimes of men who had been killed for being gay. And most of those crimes are unsolved. Some of them, there were resolutions in the cases, but they often resulted in what they call the gay panic defense, where there were very light or inadequate sentences given to the killers by judges who sympathized with them. And I came across the most prominent case, which was the case of Gordon Church, and started doing an intense amount of research into his case. That was about two and a half years ago, and it's turned into a full-fledged full-time job now as we're working on making a documentary and telling Gordon's story. Yeah. Would you mind sharing with our listeners who is Gordon Church and kind of give us a couple bullet points on what his story is? Yeah, absolutely. Utah is a really fascinating place. It was created and settled by Mormons back in the early 1800s. And the state still has a very active and vibrant uh, culture of Mormonism that kind of changes across the times. The story of Gordon Church kind of spans the whole state of Utah, and there's a lot of really interesting components from across the state. So he's from a small central Utah town. He was born in 1960. And he, like many others, struggled with coming out gay in his adolescence and coming to terms with what that meant for him in a religion that historically isn't very kind to gay people. He, in the late 1980s, was living in a small southern Utah town called Cedar City and attending university down there and was kind of finding himself for the first time with an active social group. He had a boyfriend for a period of time and was really looking forward to a strong future. He was majoring in theater 
just a really nice, really kind, wonderful guy. I've gotten to know him pretty well through the people who loved him back then. On a particular day in November, just before Thanksgiving, school was getting ready to go out for break. And Gordon was supposed to drive his grandmother, who he was living with and taking care of, to his family's home the next day for the holiday. He stopped by a gas station one evening to pick up some cigarettes and ended up getting picked up by two men by the names of Mike Archuleta and Lance Wood. And that series of events that catapulted from there resulted in Gordon's death just hours later. So Gordon was killed in a really brutal, horrible gay hate crime that kind of spread across Utah. As the men picked him up in Cedar City, they ended up kidnapping, torturing, raping Uh, putting him in the trunk of his own car, driving him north about 100 miles to a very remote space in central Utah where they completed murdering him and did some pretty terrible things to his body afterwards. Then they drove his car hundreds of miles north to the Salt Lake City area where the car and a lot of evidence was left behind. So when this murder was being solved, we had police officers from multiple counties gathering evidence in a lot of different places across the state. And both men were arrested. Mike Archuleta was sentenced to death. The trials were held in Provo, Utah. He is still on death row 29 years later. Lance Wood was sentenced to life in prison, and he is currently still in prison again 29 years later. His sentences have led him from Utah into Idaho and now into Oregon. Uh, So we have a very complex story with a lot of characters, but it's a really brutal, sad, difficult story that ultimately, as we learn, it teaches us a lot about ourselves. This is very much the Matthew Shepard's story, except in Utah, and with a lot more brutality and a lot different sense of justice. Again, this resulted in a death penalty conviction. Wow, that's <laughs> a yeah. lot. So I think there's a lot of points I want to follow up there. So I guess one of the difficulties is is that this crime took place before there was any hate crime legislation on a federal level, and I'm sure at a state level as well. Is that right? Correct. Does yeah, does there you- was uh, there was no hate crime legislation back then at all. Right. And does Utah still have a lack of hate crime legislation? Correct. Yeah, there's still no hate crime laws protecting, or the ones that do exist are very inadequate. Mm. Right. And it sounded like there was was an article written a couple of years ago that you had referenced to us when we first talked, 28 years later, the story of Gordon Church and his killers. And it sounded like from that article that when the three men first met at the gas station – that they might have met on seemingly amicable terms. Um, However, Archuleta and Wood were being deceptive. Is that your interpretation of it? Yeah, it's tricky because the only words that we have to go off of are Archuleta and Wood themselves. But there was at least a period of time when they first met at the gas station in which it seems they entered Gordon Church's car with Gordon's consent. They stopped at a bar. The two men flirted with some girls on Main Street while Gordon was still with them. We don't know exactly what happened, but at some point, they ended up robbing Gordon, injuring him, raping him, etc. from there. Both men have in their statements at various times to the police said that they targeted and picked Gordon up because he was gay and that that's why the series of events escalated from there. But it does sound like at the beginning that there may have been some consent Maybe they asked Gordon for a ride, or it's even possible Gordon thought that they were good looking and may have been flirting. There's no telling exactly how things started at the beginning because we only have the words of the killers. Right. And I did take from that article, it seemed like it was somewhat blurry that maybe Archuleta was at least saying that he was interested in him sexually. 
Uh, Archuleta is the one who committed the rape. There is no direct statement that I know of that Archuleta says that he was interested in Gordon. But both killers said that they targeted Gordon for being gay. Gotcha. That they were able to tell he was being gay, they said in one statement. In another, they said that Gordon came out to them that he was gay. Interesting. So you must have felt comfortable enough to tell these two men that, who you didn't know prior to that, as far as we know, that he was gay and comfortable enough, seemingly so, to allow him in his car. Right. Either that or they've given an account of the events that is skewed in their favor somehow. True, right. true. And then so it sounds like there was then premeditation here. But not only that, one of the things that struck me when I was reading that story was between the time when they initially heard him and threw him in the trunk to when they drove to Dog Valley in Millard County, that was about an hour or so before they got to that destination and then brutalized him even more. So there's even more of a time span there for them to think about what they were doing. Absolutely. And we have to take into account the fact that during that time, while Gordon was in the trunk, he was bleeding. He was nearly naked. He was only wearing a shirt while in the back of the car. This is post-rape. He was wrapped in chains. He had a broken arm and a broken jaw. So during that time, I mean, they could have let him go. They could have turned themselves in. They could have gotten him help. But he wasn't just in the trunk of a car. He was brutally injured and had and had suffered a lot. And it was late November. It was freezing. Right. So then they arrived in Dog Valley in Millard County. They took him out of the trunk of the car. And then yeah. the abuse got even worse. Yeah, that's when Gordon was beat to death with a tire iron. And again, they uh, they desecrated his body afterward and then just left him there. Was That was where, too, where they supposedly electrocuted his testicles? Yeah, there's more than one account. The killers gave various statements to the police. The torture, they tried to attach battery cables to his testicles. That could have happened after the rape, the first site in Cedar City, or it could have happened in Dog Valley. I think what's so profound and probably why it got your attention was just the brutality of it and the, the thought process behind it. The significant brutality is a huge part. Matthew Shepard's story affected me personally, and that one happened to catch national media attention, which is the only reason I heard of it. But uh, productions about his life in documentary form or in book form or the play The Laramie Project, all of those really stirred me. And in this case, we have a death penalty conviction that's resulted. Also, I grew up Mormon, and this is uh, quintessentially a Mormon story in that Gordon was Mormon. One of the killers was Mormon. The trials were held in Provo, Utah with a Mormon judge and Mormon juries and Mormon attorneys. So on a personal level, the story really spoke to me as far as my individual story and upbringing. Gordon himself has come to really matter to me a lot. He has been largely forgotten except by those people who knew him personally. And it's been a long time. I want people to know who he was. Absolutely. And so then after the night of the events, both uh, Archuleta and Wood went home. They were living together apparently illegally. They both were on parole and they weren't really supposed to be with each other. But then it sounded like it was within 24 or 48 hours that I guess Wood approached the police. Yeah. The two men after the murder drove Gordon's car north and they had a series of pretty horrific adventures and interactions in the 24 hours after Gordon's death. They stopped by various places. They tried to get rid of evidence. There's accounts, uh, for example, of them stopping by one particular woman's apartment. And when she questioned them about the blood on their clothing, because her animals, her dog and her cat, were reacting so viscerally to the blood, they said that they had been out in the mountains hunting rabbits. They hitchhiked 
all the way back down south. They even stopped off at Mike Archuleta's family's home, uh, where they left Gordon's watch in Mike's old bedroom after eating eggs with his adoptive parents. Then they made it back to Cedar City. Uh, so again, there's a lengthy period of time in which they could have had second thoughts, you know, and, and they never turned themselves in. They never seemed to question that what they did was wrong. When they got back, Mike fell asleep. And early, early in the morning, Lance walked down to the same gas station where they had picked Gordon up, and he called his parole officer to turn them in. Right then, before the police got there, he dumped Gordon's wallet, which was still in his pocket, in the trash can at the gas station. We think the reason Lance did that is that he was seeking to blame Mike for everything. His primary defense in his trial was that he felt crippled and scared during the murder itself, and that Mike had done everything, and Lance had only not acted because he was frightened. But ultimately, that didn't hold true. The evidence didn't support that. But we think that's why he initially turned them in. He, he knew they were going to get caught, and he wanted to blame Mike for the whole series of events. So as you're describing it, it's something that I noticed was missing from the articles that I did read. So I'm guessing it's not true. But were these men on drugs at all? They were both drinking that night, but there were no drugs that we know of. Gotcha. I don't know how you can do all that. Visit your mom and dad and play long as if everything's okay. That's just yeah. uh, almost psychotic, I guess, is what that yeah, equates right. to. Yeah, there's, a, there's some really scary components to this. And of course, these men are both human. They have families. They have backgrounds and upbringings. And that's part of what we're going to be exploring in the documentary as well, is that these men have developments. And the people who knew and loved Gordon are devastated by this series of events, of course, but so are the people who knew Mike and Lance. I mean, imagine if a direct member of your family was the victim of a crime. But also imagine if the direct member of your family was the perpetrator of a crime like this. Mm -hmm. This ruined lives across the board. It's a really frightening story, but we were seeking to tell that story 30 years later through the eyes of those who were impacted by it. Right. And why is that, Chad? Why have you decided to try to tell this story? It's become very personal to me. I'm a storyteller by nature. This is a unique in that it's kind of drawing upon all of my individual skill sets. I've spent my career as a writer, as a teacher, as a therapist. But at the same time, I'm also a man who grew up gay and Mormon. And this documentary project kind of challenges all the different parts of me as I'm sitting with people in interviews in their most tender spaces and, and talking about the worst thing that ever happened to them while trying to format this in a story that will be remembered by people and who will have their lives changed by seeing this. It's kind of become my personal crusade in many ways. It's, it's kind of taken over my life. There was a particular day during my research when I drove down to southern Utah, and I found the gas station where Gordon was picked up, and I drove up to the site where he was assaulted, and I retraced the route to Dog Valley. And I was openly in tears through that entire drive, just thinking of what he had gone through during that time. After that, I found his grave. I found where he has been remembered and memorialized by his family and just realizing how much they loved him and how much his story matters across the board. It's become very personal to me. Absolutely. How are his parents, uh, his family and friends taking to the documentary? Yeah, I'm actually not going to talk about his family. They've respectfully asked me not to talk about them. They're very private people who've gone through something unspeakable here. Mm -hmm. As far as Gordon's loved ones, I've interviewed many of his college friends, including his boyfriend, people who are sharing stories about the last time they saw him alive, what he meant to them, and how much their lives have been altered by this. And it's really sad. 
they remember each other, of course, but most of these people have gone on and many of them are grandparents now. You know, it's much later in their lives, mm -hmm. but they describe this as the worst thing that's ever happened. And many of them have never seen each other since all of this. In addition, we've interviewed the police officers who worked the case, and they also have described this as the worst case they've ever worked on in conjunction with one other pretty horrific crime from around that same time that has some startling similarities to Gordon Church's story, the murder of a young woman. But we've been able to interview these police officers, many of whom are retired now and, again, are much more advanced in age. And we're kind of capturing all different sides of this as much as possible to tell this story and, and how it impacted the people who love Gordon and who worked on him, his case. Sure. It did seem profound to me from what I read that it seemed like the, maybe it's my own bias, but it seemed like the police were as affected by this as anyone. They were angry, frustrated, hurt, and they're all seeking justice for Gordon Church as well. When Lance turned themselves in, when he turned he and Mike in, there was a brief period of time in which the police officers had to process information. But the detective who went up to Dog Valley to find them, he didn't know who the victim was. He just knew there was a body. Mm -hmm. Mike and Lance left Gordon Church's driver's license right next to the body sitting there and it's actually got blood spatter on it it's sitting there in the dirt on a cold november morning and we have the police officer who walked up to the body before even seeing the body picks up the driver's license and realizes that he knew this young man it's a man from his hometown oh. this case mattered these are small towns in utah these people protect each other in one way this documentary is the story of a team of police officers who sought to fight for justice for a young man who didn't care that he was gay they only cared what happened to him and how horrible it was. And they wanted to find justice for him. They're a large part of this story. And they did an amazing and incredible job. Absolutely. So what stage are you at now with, with the documentary? We're probably about a third through with filming. We have a lot of work to do. It's tricky because this could be easily a full-time job. I have a professional film crew working with me, but I'm self-funding this project. And so because of that, we are only able to film when there aren't other professional obligations for the film crews to work on. If I had full funding, if we had uh, investors who could support this project, I feel like we could have the complete filming done in just two months. And then the editing process takes a few months beyond that. And we're hoping to get the film into Sundance and to do showings around the state and to enter it into other film festivals and get it out there so people can see it. But at the pace we're moving, we're still several months, if not more than a year away from finishing. Sure. Uh, with funding, it gets finished much more quickly. But we have been working on it two years, and we're about a third of the way through with the filming process. Gotcha. What is the definition of full funding? Full funding in a case like this, documentaries are expensive. When you look at the graphics packages and the music and the post-production costs, the editing, the guy who sits down with uh, you know 120 hours worth of film and makes a 90-minute movie out of it, even a cheap movie costs a couple million to make, honestly. But this one, we're looking at a couple hundred thousand. I put in about $40,000. And again, the film crew I'm working with, they're donating their time and equipment at this point without being paid. But we need money to help make this happen. Movies are not easy or cheap to make. Sure. And that, so that 200000 that would cover getting the movie made, completed. Does that also give you enough funding to be able to do the promotion that it would take to actually get it in front of people's eyes? Yes. Yes. And that 200000 what that does primarily is it allows me to secure the services of the film crew, the director, the cameraman, the sound guy so that they don't have to work on other projects. This then becomes their primary project. Yeah, gotcha. And we're able to travel around and capture the things we need to. Ultimately, things like travel and meals and hotels, that stuff is pretty small potatoes as far as cost goes. 
securing the time and talent that it takes to finish this, plus the post-production costs of editing and sound. Yeah, all of that's factored into that 200000 Gotcha. Yeah. And how are you doing, how are you soliciting funding now? Do you have any strategies, any GoFundMe campaigns or anything? We- GoFundMe doesn't really work well in a project like this simply because they charge such a substantial portion. They keep about 8% of whatever is earned. So we've had a couple of individual donations. Um, we're looking, and, we, and I've, been, I've been talking to uh, dozens and dozens of individuals. We're looking, hopefully, for one investor who's passionate about this project and wants to partner with us on this. But along the way, we've had individual donations of a couple hundred or a thousand along the way that have helped us keep this going. But we have a long way to go. We are looking at grants, and we have just set up what we call a fiscal sponsorship. So for people who want to donate, and if they do it through the fiscal sponsorship, they can get a tax write-off for that donation. So that's just being established now. Gotcha. Awesome. That's great. Do you know when that'll be complete or ready? The fiscal sponsorship should be ready by the end of the year, and it's uh, December 4th today. Right. Okay. Perfect. That's good to know. So let me ask, what made you take on a documentary? I mean, you're a writer. What, why didn't you go down the you know, writing a book route or a, a long essay on this? That's kind of where this started. When I initially started looking into the hate crimes across Utah, I thought, you know, I could make a book about this. These are people who've largely been forgotten. But Gordon's case became so all-encompassing. It's so much larger in scope than any of the others. I mean, just the, the fact that there were two murder trials it automatically generates about 20,000 pages of paper the death penalty appeals and everything that's happened after. So I thought, you know, maybe this is going to be a a book about Gordon himself. But as I got to hear these stories, uh, the documentary is just going to capture emotion and visuals and sounds in ways that a book just wouldn't do that. Particularly when the scope expanded to include the stories of Mike and Lance and their loved ones as well. Mm -hmm. There came to light just a number of facts and twists and turns in the stories where as a consumer, I would be so much more moved with something visual mm-hmm. than I would with something in print. Right. Sure, and so that's that. when I started shopping around for film crews. And honestly, the guys at Avalanche Studios that are working with me, they don't do this kind of thing. They don't say, hey, we'll join you and donate our equipment and our talent for free. They don't do that. They, right. uh, <laughs> these guys have been incredible in that they have found my passion for this project and then have now shared with their passion. And they've been with me on every film shoot and every interview in, uh, in every location. And they're incredible. So I'm so fortunate because that just doesn't happen in this industry. Sure. Well, to me, I guess that's, that speaks to the power of, of this story. And sometimes when things – I know this easy isn't the right word, but when things work out easy like this, kind of suggests that it's, it's meant to be. It's supposed to happen. Yeah. And as you meet the people and as you see them, that's where it starts changing your life. I mean, reading that article that, that you referenced and hearing what happened to Gordon, that's horror. It's, it's just awful. But when you see the people, when you meet them and you hear their stories, we've interviewed a Gordon's college boyfriend, for example, and he talks about how they met and how they fell in love. He talks about going up into the mountains, camping together and laying out under the stars in each other's arms and falling asleep and planning their future together. And then you see how his life was irrevocably altered when Gordon was killed. When you hear these stories from these people, you can't capture that in a book as mm-hmm. like you can when you see their faces and you hear their voices. Sure. So I have a question for you, Chad. Sadly, we 
hear of many stories like this. Uh, we're still experiencing our community, especially in the transgender and the transgendered women of color community are still experiencing tragedies like this on a regular basis. Why is it important that we tell these stories? Well, telling these stories raises our awareness. I feel like there's a passion for LGBT history right now. We need to learn from what has happened. We have this young man who struggled to came, come out, who found a life for himself in a small town in the middle of the AIDS era of being gay. But one reason that sets this story apart from all of the other brutal, horrible stories like this, and needless to say, transgender women of color are subjected to violence at this level in much more frequency than, than white gay men. But in this case, we have justice. And justice is a complicated topic, but in this case, it resulted in convictions. They got the guys, and those guys are not walking the streets. And in most of these stories, they're unsolved. And for the ones that are solved, there isn't justice. But in this story, we have justice, and that's that's part of the story that I want to tell. Mm -hmm. right. Do you think most of those stories are unsolved because there wasn't any motivation behind solving them? I think there can be a number of reasons. The people who were killed weren't out as gay in some cases, and so it was never reported as such. Mm -hmm. I think in some cases it didn't matter to the investigators that the person who was killed was a little bit less than because they were gay or trans. I think there's a number of components. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes these lifestyles, when you look back at these types of murders that took place in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, even early 2000s, there's different eras of history that that captures. Uh, in the 1970s, you had to have a membership in order to get into a gay club. And they were regularly raided by police. Everything was behind closed doors and secret. And people didn't want to be outed to their families. I mean, there's all these different eras of history, right? Right. But I think in each individual story, there's historically injustice for people who have been killed because of their sexual orientation and gender identity. Right. Yeah. And that's why I think it's powerful that you're telling this story because I think it's a little bit too easy today to forget how far we've come. Yes, um, We have a lot of opportunity today, and I, I know that equality is not yet achieved, and we're still fighting for that. But I think a lot of us have a lot of benefits today only because of people who came before us. And I think this is an important story to tell so we can have some context on what we overcame. That is my point behind most of this is that we we live in a world today where many of us take for granted the benefits that we have, and we forget that there are people who were brutally murdered. And because of that, because of them being brutally murdered, it changed the hearts and minds of people who, for the most part, would have turned their head and ignored the fact that somebody was gay or would have, um, would have maybe themselves participated in slight forms of disenfranchisement or maybe have done some forms of big, right, exactly. And we forget that. We forget that every day these kinds of things happened and we can't forget that they happened. We have to be grateful that it has changed people to now realizing that we're just as human as everyone else. That and when we hear a story like the Pulse nightclub shootings or the Matthew Shepard story, when it's discussed publicly, it's something that we grieve as individuals, but it's ultimately just a news story that we heard and that we remember. But for Matthew Shepard's mother, this isn't just a news story. This is the worst thing that ever happened. She will never move past this, even as she moves past it, right? And that's the story that I want to help capture with Gordon as well. For many people, it's a, it's a name in the newspaper. 
But this was a man in the prime of his life. He was shorter than five foot four, 120 pounds. He was small, but he had people around him who cared about him. He had loves and friends and interests and a future, and that was cut short. And just because it's three decades later, this is more than just a name on a piece of paper. This was a person who mattered and who deserves to be remembered. Right. I think it's almost strengthened by the fact that it is three decades later that you're you're telling this. It kind of, I think now is the time for people to be able to connect with something like this and to relate to it. Well, if we made this if we made this story in 1995, we'd be saying Mike Archuleta has been on death row for six years. Right. But we're making the story in 2017, and we're saying he's been on death row for 29 years. Mm-hmm. Right. The people we're interviewing from across the board, they've gone on with their lives. They've become parents and grandparents and launched careers. But they're still frozen in time at the same time. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, a lot of questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I can talk for hours. But, uh, I spend a lot of time on this. Well, yes, yeah, so I was going to say, I don't support the death penalty, but every now and then something happens. And I'm just like, it's hard for me to hold to that constitution. And this is something where it kind of questions that. And- <laughs> I, can, I, can maybe, I can maybe just say one thing on that quickly. Both Mike Archuleta and Lance Wood were adopted, by the way. But Mike Archuleta was a young Hispanic man who was raised by Catholic parents in a small Utah town and with a pretty tragic background, honestly. And he ended up on death row. Lance Wood is a tall, good-looking, white Mormon man with a white Mormon family. And the white Mormon jury gave him life in prison and they committed the same crime. So there's definitely a discussion in this film about what justice looks like. I think both men should not be walking the streets, absolutely. They did something horrible, and they should never be given that opportunity again. However, ultimately, I don't support the death penalty either. There's some interesting components as far as how justice has been um, achieved here. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So I guess if the main goal is to get the men off the streets, then we've achieved that. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Mike has been living in the same tiny cell for 30 years where you know Lance has gone on to have relationships and a series of bizarre adventures in his prison institutions because he ultimately has much more freedom than Mike has had. Interesting. Have you been able to talk with either of them? No, I haven't reached out to either of them yet, but we do plan to. Gotcha. I think that'd be interesting. I think what'll be very fascinating about what you're doing is after the documentary is complete and then you go on tour with that and you have your post-movie discussions, I think there's going to be a lot of great discussions had with this. Yeah, this story brings up a lot of visceral visceral pain for people. Even in just conversations or presentations that I've done about this, it raises a lot of questions. This isn't an anti-Mormon film. It's not an anti-death penalty film. We don't have any political agenda here. But these topics raise a lot of really hurtful and painful spaces in people. So I've already conducted some of those uh, forums, and yes, they've been they've been really interesting. I don't know if you've ever seen the Laramie Project, for example, but that play shakes you to your core. Or A Normal Heart on the HBO movie. These types of films move you and hurt you, and you leave changed. Mm-hmm. And that's the type of movie we're trying to make here. Yeah, it sounds like you're you're well on your way, and hopefully we can help in our own little way. Where can our audience learn more about Gordon Church? A simple Google search will take you to a couple of different uh, news articles that have been published about him. But ultimately, you only see his name in conjunction with the mention of the killers in the paper. So we want to tell his story in a fundamentally different way. But for those who would like to engage in discussion with me about this, I'm Chad Anderson. I'm fairly easy to find on Facebook, although that's a common name. But email is likely the best way to initially establish contact with me for those who have questions or for those who may be interested in contributing to the funds. Uh, my email address is hellochadman, H-E-L-L-O-C-H-A-D. 
D-M-A-N at yahoo.com. And I'm happy to speak with anyone who's interested or has questions or, or comments on this. That's great. We'll be sure to include that in our show notes. So if you're interested in helping Chad put this documentary together, please certainly reach out to Chad at hellochadman at yahoo.com or reach out to us directly and we'll be happy to connect you as well. Chad, thank you for your time. We appreciate you telling this story and you sharing um, your story in creating this with us and our audience. And hopefully we can in some way, shape or form help you bring this to a completion. I'm so honored that you took the time to talk to me about this. Thank you. And thank you for all you do for the financial community. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Chad, for fighting to tell Gordon Church's story. It's a horrific but important story to tell. If you would like to help Chad tell Church's story, please remember to email him directly at hellochadman at yahoo.com. Again, that's hellochadman at yahoo.com. Direct message Chad Anderson on Facebook or contact us and we'll connect you with him directly. Our goal is to build a stronger queer community that can withstand any confrontations that come our way. Please help us reach more queer people by liking, commenting, and sharing this or any other Queer Money episode on iTunes. Thank you. Okay. We just serviced you. Now you get to service us by subscribing to this podcast on iTunes and signing up for the Queer Money Lifestyle Newsletter at queer.money. Well, I'm not really gay. <laughs> <laughs> Would help me if I had a personal chef made all me all my healthy meals for me. Right. So instead, I'll have a Snickers tonight for dinner. <laughs> <laughs> the other end, I like the butts. So. <laughs> yeah. uh.